God speaks to us through his word in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Hey guys, can you hear me? Am I there? I'm good, okay, cool. Um, hey, welcome, welcome to church this morning, guests in the room. Uh, Y'all, we are glad that you're here. You're glad, we're glad that you uh, joined us this morning. Glad you got to be here for di baby dedications. I already cried once today during baby dedications, so we'll just like see what happens with the sermon. You know, might get a little crazy up here. Um, so my name is Blake. Uh, my wife, Grace, and I get to serve and lead uh, in our community group ministry and several other ministries of our church. So it's an honor for me to be a part of this church with you all. And it's an honor for me to get to come and share some of the, the word with you today. Um, so I'm going to get into this pretty quickly because we are trying to cover three chapters of the book of Genesis today. So we'll see how that goes. Um, we preach through books of the Bible in our church. So we've been preaching through the book of Genesis for the last several weeks at least. Um, you can find all of those sermons from this series online or wherever you get podcasts. Um, I would encourage you to go and listen to those because God's word works kind of cohesively. Not just kind of, it works cohesively, right? All of the Bible leans on all of the rest of the Bible uh, for us to be able to read it and make sense of what's going on. So um, yeah, if today piques your interest, um, I would encourage you to go and listen to some more of those sermons and just see what God has been teaching us through the book of Genesis. He's been teaching us some good things, right? Genesis, that word means beginning or beginnings, right? And that's what the book is about, beginnings. We've been learning about the origin and identity of creation, of mankind, of God's plans to redeem us from sin and death and Satan and curse, right? And Noah's story which we just heard a little tidbit of, flows from all of those other stories, creation, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the sin in the garden, the serpent, right? God's promises to redeem, right? We've seen that creation was made to be a temple for worship of God. It was made to be a glorious temple. God made it good, very good. Mankind was created as God's image in that temple to be his royal representatives, his reflections of his character on earth. God placed us in a garden, Right? And that garden was meant to be a place of deep formation and intimacy with God. Right? We were meant to walk with God in that garden. Right? But in the garden, in that place of intimacy and relationship, mankind fell when Adam and Eve chose to try and steal the likeness of God that he had already given to them. Right? They tried to take what was only God's to give, and because of that, they fell, and curse entered into the world, and death entered into the world, and sin entered into the world. And our relationships with God, and with each other, and with all of creation have been broken and defined by this word curse since then, because we tried to buck God's good authority and take for our own. 
Humans have been falling deeper into sin as we've been walking through from chapter three and four and five and now in chapter six through eight. Humans have been falling deeper and deeper into sin. These chapters feel a little bit like a spiral. Things are getting out of hand. And so we've been walking through what, what is, how does God's grace meet us in that spiral, but then also what does sin look like as it matures on the earth? And it looks scary, right? The end of Cain's family line in Genesis chapters four and five, chapter four, shows us that humans are even beginning to twist the reason and the common grace, their, their like capacity to make things and turn those towards evil ends, right? Cain's family ends with a man named Lamech and Lamech multiplies all of the corruption that Cain began, right? He takes two wives, he commits two murders, He boasts that his violence and vengeance is 77 times greater than that of Cain's, right? So Lamech at the end of chapter four becomes this like example, this exemplar, this model of what human beings look like when sin has matured in us. And it's a scary picture of corruption. But hope has never been absent, right? God promised a seed of woman would come and crush the serpent to reverse the curse in chapter three. God preserved even Cain's life the murderer in Genesis chapter four. And at the end of Genesis chapter four, so right after we talk about this guy named Lamech, who's like this model of human corruption, right? Adam and Eve have another son. And it says at that time, humans begun to call upon or worship the name of the Lord, right? So in the midst of all of this chaos, we're seeing also God introducing moments of grace and mercy. He's meeting us in our chaos. Even east of Eden, God is meeting us in chaos. So we're gonna continue that story today through Noah's story. What I wanna do really quickly is just pray for us as we open up this story. Um, Would you pray for me and I'll pray for all of us. God, we ask that you would be present with us, spirit, to lift up our eyes today to see Jesus in all of his glory, even in the story of Noah. We pray, Lord, that the reality of our sin would be clear to us, but we also pray that the reality of your mercy and your salvation would be all the clearer to us. Soften our hearts to your word this morning, God. Help us to be attentive. Help us to be awake to what you would say to us, Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the story of Noah is one of those fun ones that I feel like is maybe one of the better known Bible stories, especially in our time right? If you grew up in church going to any denomination, you probably heard about Noah's story in kids' church, in VBS. You probably watched a VeggieTales about it at one point in time, or you maybe uh, saw one of those cool flannel graph things with Noah's ark and the boat on it. Maybe we colored outside of the lines on some rainbow coloring sheets when we were kids. Um, And even if you actually didn't grow up in church, even if you haven't really been around Christians that much, you probably have heard at least something about this story or know a little bit of its plot, right? A dude named Noah reigned for 40 days and 40 nights. There's a big old boat, right? Um, On top of the kind of cute versions of it or the sort of culturally appropriate versions of it, um, there's also a whole bunch of weird speculations about this story swimming around in our culture, 
right? There's theories about it. Like, did we find Noah's Ark in Iraq or in Turkey? Uh, Were the Nephilim in chapter 6 ancient aliens or did they build the pyramids? Uh, Are there Mayan myths or uh, other myths of a great flood out there in the world that kind of corroborate the biblical story? Right? So we've got a lot of theories about Noah and a lot of interest in Noah's Ark. Right? There's a whole museum. You can go check out their website. It's kind of cool, but also they really go deep on it. They go hard, and they're like, let's see if we can figure out all the different kinds of things that would have been on the Ark, and what would a day look like in the life of Noah on the Ark? Um, and all of those kind of from cute to sci-fi versions or theories about this story are fine, and they have their place. But what I'm praying for us today is that what God would do is kind of clear out all of the fog of all of the different theories or cute retellings of this story or versions of it that we've heard so that we could see God preaching to us a clear gospel message of salvation through the story of Noah. That's what we actually need today. We need to clear the ground a little bit. There's so much fascination about this story and energy poured into it. And I'm praying for a gospel message. So let's see where we are in the story, right? The context in this story is first that we have ended up with the Lord being grieved over our sin. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Where we are in the story is that God is grieved at the state of his creation. When we hear about God being grieved, my immediate question is like, what in the world does that mean for God to be grieved or that God would regret something? Doesn't he know everything? How could he regret From chapter 3 onward, we have watched as the crown of God's creation, human beings made in his image, all of us, right? The crown of God's creation in Genesis 1 has fallen and spiraled out of control into sin. It says that every intention of their hearts was evil all the time. Derek Kidner says that a more emphatic statement of the wickedness of the human heart is hardly conceivable. But we just brush right over that sentence if we're reading this story sometimes. Every intention of the the heart of mankind was evil all the time. Creation has been turned totally upside down by sinful man. The desires of our heart were made for God. He placed a desire in us. And now it's always evil all the time. In Genesis chapter 1, God told humans to multiply, and they have multiplied. That's what chapter 6 begins with. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, but we see that evil has multiplied with them. The opening verses of Genesis 6 kind of touch our imaginations, or they should, to picture an earth covered in people who all follow in the footsteps of Eve, their mother, and Adam, their father, right? And the little example to show us in chapter 6 of how the Genesis 3 sin is just rampant among humankind is this, right? The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good or attractive, and they took whomever they desired as wives. 
That's a direct echo of Genesis chapter 3, where Eve saw that the fruit was good and took it. The phrase in the rest of the Old Testament that describes this kind of like, you see whatever you want to see and you take whatever you want to take, right, is this. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's a scary phrase. When we see this in the Old Testament, there's scary stories and scary books. The book of Judges is wild because everyone does what is right in their own eyes. We've gone from walking with God in the garden to grieving the very heart of God. Eden means delight, and we've gone from the garden of delight to a world full of violence and corruption. All of the desires of our hearts were evil, and so God's heart was grieved. And I want to be really clear here. When it says that God is grieved, God is not grieved or sorry because it turned out in a way that surprised him. When it says that God was sorry or that God regretted, what it's doing is it's using human words to give human people a snapshot of what sin has done, right? God is wholly different than us. And so we need words that would actually communicate something of meaning to us. And grief and regret are those human words to communicate the action of a God who's different than us. He's not like us, right? But we need a snapshot of what sin has really done and what it really means. And we need to really sit in it and be a little uncomfortable with it. Our Father's heart was and is grieved by our sin. Jesus, who most clearly shows us the heart of the Father, wept over the city of Jerusalem and says, I wish that I could be like a mother bird who could collect them to myself because they're sinful. Jesus weeps at the reality of death in John chapter 11. His friend dies and he weeps and it says he's angry over death in John chapter 11. But he's not surprised and he's not worried about our sin. He doesn't not have an answer. He's not lamenting because he's hopeless right? He wasn't wringing his hands over human sin and violence then, and he still isn't. When war breaks out in the Middle East, God isn't wringing his hands over the violence and the atrocities being committed. He's grieved, but not as those who have no hope. The word here in Hebrew doesn't tell us that God made a mistake. It's a word that describes lament or heaviness of heart. But even while he grieves, he's totally in control. His answer is not to remain in lament because he is the only one powerful enough to do something about it. And something must be done. A grieved father has to move towards his kids in some way. The section ends, however, with a note of hope. Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord, right? That little first paragraph there ends with Noah finds grace from God. There is a hope of grace even in the midst of our chaos and our sin. But God has an answer for human sin and he judges it. That's our second point today. God judges sin. And God saw that the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God's judgment is hard for us. That's okay. This morning, if 
reading the, the sentence, right? I will destroy them with the earth, right? If reading that, if hearing it read out loud to you makes you wriggle a little bit, that's okay. God's judgment is difficult for us. It's hard. And what we actually need to do is pray against oppressive, demonic fear that would cause us to run and hide from God, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. And we need to pray that instead the reality of God's justice on sin would cause us to cling to God and run to him. Here's a couple of things we need to remember about God's judgment, his justice. First is that there are no parts in God. You can't categorize and cut apart his divine nature. You can't compartmentalize the love of God from the justice of God over here and say, well, I want that one, but I won't take that one. Can we just trim a little bit of that off, God, for me, right? His judgment and his mercy are both functions or attributes of his one character, right? God is one, the Bible says ubiquitously, right? He's three in one, but he's one. He has one divine nature. There's one God, and you can't cut him apart, and copy and paste the parts that we want from the parts that we don't. And actually, his judgment and his justice are functions of his love, which is good. We don't want a loving God who isn't also just. That would be scary. And we also don't want a just God who isn't loving. That would be scary too. He was grieved by human sin, and because his loving grief is real, it caused him, it motivated him to accompany that loving grief with a holy wrath on sin. Not one or the other of those two things can outweigh each other because they're not two different things that we can sort of put on two different ends of a scale. Both ways of describing God's one divine nature. Right? This is who he always is in the scripture. It's what he told Moses when Moses asks God to show him his nature. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, which he is, even in Noah's time, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's from Exodus 34. That causes another question to spring up. How can it be that he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but also will by no means clear the guilty? Right? There's a tension there. And it's okay for us to sit in that tension. So often when we talk about God's judgment, what we want is we want the God of love who's gonna give us free will and set us free, right? We love those verses. For freedom you have been set free, the truth will set you free, right? But we don't want the consequences for our misuse of that freedom. And in fact, what we often do is turn around and point the finger at God and say, well, I'm mad at you because I've misused free will that you gave me. And now there's consequences for that. We're mad at God for being slow to anger and not punishing other people's sins earlier, but we don't want to place ourselves in that category of being punishable. And all of those mental gymnastics, when we do them, and I do too, by the way, I'm super good. Ask my wife. I'm the best in the world at defending myself, right? All of those mental gymnastics, what they do is that they reveal to us those moments in our life when we don't want the actual God. We want a God who is comfortable with us all the time. We want a God who's always going to make us the good guy. We want a God whose holiness is limited by what we're comfortable with. God sends the flood as the natural consequence 
the natural end of a world that we destroyed. We are culpable for the flood. Human beings decreated the world by sin and corruption. Verse 12, right, says that God saw that the earth was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And then in verse 13 it says, I've determined to make an end of all flesh. I will destroy them with the earth. So sorry. (coughs) What we miss in English is that that word for corrupt and the word for destroy are the same exact word in Hebrew. Right? God saw that the earth was destroyed because all flesh had destroyed their way. And God said, I'll destroy them with the earth. God destroyed all flesh, but as a result of the destruction that human sin had already wrought upon creation. And we lose that in English. But the scary reality is that the flood is just God completing the work that human beings had already started with their own sin. God's God's creation is undone by God's wrath. In chapter 7, verse 11, it says that the deeps burst forth, the fountains of the deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain began to fall. We learned in Genesis 1 about that pattern of forming and filling creation, right? And in day two of creation, God separated the waters of the heavens from the waters of the deep. And now in chapter 7, those two things are rejoined and we're back to Genesis 1 verses 2 and 3 because of human sin. Creation has been unraveled and reversed The house of creation is torn down so that God can cleanse it of human sin and destruction, right? We can't miss the imagery of water here. God is washing or purifying his creation from corruption. Peter compares the flood to baptism in 1 Peter 3. So then that's all a whole bunch of other questions about what does that mean, right? But what we don't want to miss is that God is purifying and saving creation through destruction. If judgment of the flood is a baptism, though, we can trust that God's plans to renew creation have already started through the flood, right? That's that strange paradox of the the cross, that God will forgive iniquity and transgression, but also will by no means clear the guilty. That's the cross being preached to us through the book of Exodus and the book of Genesis, right? The story of the flood in chapters 7 and 8 are structured in this really symmetrical way, right? The two halves of the story mirror each other. We can see that in the way that the days kind of tick up, seven days, and then 40 days and 40 nights, and then 150 days on the ark. And then in chapter 8, it says he waited 150 days, and then he waited 40 days, and then he waited seven days. And that mirror, that symmetry actually hinges on chapter 8, verse 1, which is where this story takes a really dramatic and beautiful turn, that God saves sinners. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, God, but God remembered Noah. The story of Noah is not only about judgment, right? We need to hear that it's actually a story about salvation by the grace of God on sinners through judgment, right? We could take stock of like what all was on the ark. And if we were all to like write down our answers, we'd probably get a bunch of different things. Noah was on the ark, obviously, and his, his kids and his wife and their wives and a whole bunch of animals, two pairs of every kind, seven pairs of all the clean animals. Um, There was probably a bunch of food on the ark, 
They probably had like blankets and pillows. I don't know, we could go through a whole list of things that were on the ark. And what we would probably miss is this reality, is that sin was still on the ark because there were sinners on the ark. So God is saving sinners through judgment, through the waters of destruction. God is still saving sinners. Noah's not a perfect man, he's righteous. He's obedient when God gives him instructions about the ark, but he's not perfect, he's a sinner, right? God saves sinners, and this whole story is trying to teach us about that. It's really trying to teach us about Jesus. Here's a couple of ways that it's doing that, a couple of things that we might miss, and I'm just gonna list them really quickly, and we can let the weight of them settle on us as they build and build and build, right? In the midst of the decreation of sin, as the rest of creation is being undone by sin, God provides the ark as a refuge for creation, and it looks like a little tiny creation, right? Noah was to take animals on the ark, each according to its kind, in verse 13 of chapter 7, and that directly echoes Genesis 1, where God created animals each according to their kind. God commanded Noah to store up food to serve as food for you, it says, which is nearly the same word for word in Hebrew as when God gives every plant for food in Genesis 1.29. God formed the world into three different realms in three days of creation, the heavens, the dry land, and the seas. And God commands Noah to make an ark with three decks to imitate the world, creation. The word for ark in Hebrew is only used one other time in the whole Old Testament, and it's the basket that Moses' mother makes for him to save him from certain death. So we have two rescuers now, Noah and Moses, being preserved through these baskets, these little boats. In chapter 8, verse 2, the wind of God hovers over the waters of creation. It's the same word in Hebrew for spirit, wind and spirit. Just like in Genesis chapter 1, he reforms creation through this wind hovering over the waters. Noah and all of the animals and his family emerge in chapter 8, verse 13, on the first day of a new year. In chapter 8, verse 17, Noah and all the animals of the land and sky are told to be fruitful and multiply, just like God said to Adam and Eve. In chapter 6, verses 6, God is grieved to his heart by sin. But in chapter 8, verse 21, the Lord is pleased in his heart and says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Right here we have a promise. Curse is already being pushed back. Chapter 9, verse 1, the Lord blesses Noah. No person has been called blessed in this book since Adam and Eve were created. Noah's name means rest. Noah's dad prophesied that Noah would bring mankind relief from their toil, right? That word toil echoes the curse in Genesis chapter 3. And through Noah, God gives creation back a temporary sense of like Sabbath rest, set free from all of that violence before the flood. But Noah just foreshadows the greater Noah, Jesus. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus gives us an eternal rest with God, relief from the curse. God's covenant with Noah, which we'll hear about next week in chapter 9, preserves creation. It's not going to be destroyed again. But it preserves creation so that the seed of woman, the greater Noah, who is also the greater Adam, who is also the greater Abel, right, is killed by his own to offer up an acceptable and pleasing sacrifice to God, who is also the greater Seth, a man appointed, right, to bring worship Jesus Christ, 
could come and himself set creation finally free from all of its struggle with our sin and our corruption, where we have destroyed Jesus redeems. To us, as we toil under the curse, Jesus, the greater Noah, says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So here's just a couple of questions to leave ourselves with as we end for the day. God judges sin because his heart is grieved and in his love, his justice actually rushes towards us. Let me read from you, for you from Psalm 85 really quick. This, This verse came to me today. Surely the salvation of God is near to those who fear him. Steadfast love, this in salvation, right? This is God's salvation. Here's what it is. Where steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Where justice and peace kiss each other in the salvation of God, right? So God's loving, grieved justice on sin meets with his steadfast love in the person of Jesus Christ at the cross and at the tomb to set us free. That's the clear gospel message today. And there's just a couple of questions to accompany that message. Where in your life have you stopped being grieved over your own sin? Where have we played those mental gymnastics to distance ourselves from culpability and from justice, right? We read stories like Adam and Eve or like Cain and Abel or like any of the stories of Israel or about the disciples in the Gospels, and we say, how could they be so dumb or sinful or ignorant or stubborn? Man, Israel, you guys are so stubborn. I'm really glad I'm not like Israel, right? That's the heart of a Pharisee. That's my heart, right? We listen to sermons, and we go, man, that was a good sermon. I really hope there's somebody in the room that needed that today. Or you're sitting next to like your spouse and you're like, oh man, they needed that today. Let me tell you, right? We wanna live life like we're the good guys in our own story, right? And we actually all need to take a moment and realize today, me too, as your brother and your friend, that we all need this. We need to sit in the reality that God is grieved by our sin. He has an, an answer for our sin. Justice will be done and has been done. But don't sit on the sidelines of your own faith or your own family or your church or your community group and lie to yourself and say that you're the only one in that group that isn't messy or who doesn't need to realize that we have to confess and repent. But secondly, do you know the joy of salvation, right? Noah's story, right, isn't just about judgment and justice. It's also about the joy of a God who lovingly and freely delights to save through judgment, right? Creation in Genesis chapter 1 is God's free choice. He didn't have to do it. He wasn't bored. He didn't make you because he needed you. He made you because it delighted him to make you and to share his love to such a degree that he would create things like galaxies where nothing lives, but it's beautiful because God uh, joyfully made it, right? Creation is a free act of God's divine love. Recreation in Christ is a free act of God's divine love for you. God joyfully did it. 
And so what we need to ask today too is not just where do I need to confess and repent and turn away and humble myself under the reality of sin, but also do I know the joy of salvation? Have I rested and humbled myself under that reality too? Jesus Christ took the full flood of God's wrath for you and me so that we could be saved. He is better than Noah. Noah was not the judge and he also ultimately wasn't the savior. Right? God used him to save creation and preserve it, but he wasn't the savior, right? Noah would have had no response for the flood without God's grace. Jesus is both the judge and the savior. Noah walked with God, it says here. Through Jesus, we are able to walk with God. Noah was called blameless in chapter six, and that word for blameless in the rest of the Old Testament, over half of its 100 uses, describe unblemished sacrificial animals, right? Jesus Christ is the blameless one, the unblemished sacrificial lamb who atones for our sins and covers us. So we need to joyfully look to Jesus as our savior and deliverer. And not only that, but we need to cling to Jesus as our hope because Jesus isn't only the better Noah this morning and for all time, but he's also the better ark, right? We already mentioned that the only other ark with this same Hebrew word in the Old Testament is Moses's basket, right? This thing that saves them from certain death through the waters of chaos, right? Through the flood or through the Nile, the vessel of salvation is this ark. It's a refuge. It was the only hope of living through judgment. Here's the simple version. If you are not on the ark, you are going to die. And we need this sense of desperate hope that if we don't have Jesus, we need to actually believe that and feel that. If we don't have Jesus, I have no hope. We need that desperate sense of hope to make us cling to Jesus today because that's what we're supposed to do, right? When we realize our sin, we're supposed to be like Mary Magdalene in another garden in the book of John who sees the risen Jesus and clings to him. And Jesus actually has to say, hey, don't, don't cling to me. I've got to go see other people, right? Because she's just like so tightly holding on to him. That's what we need to do in response to our, our sin and the reality of God's salvation today. I'll close with this and remind us. First Peter 3 says that the flood and the ark corresponds. That's the word that Peter uses. Corresponds to baptism. And there's mystery there, but it's also really simple. If you have been baptized into Jesus' death, you have died to your own life, your old life, right? The flood, the decreation, that stuff has already happened through Jesus. And you are being transformed into a new creation, according to 2 Corinthians. So maybe some of us need to trust in Jesus for the first time today and experience that death, which actually brings life Right? That's so weird. All over the Bible, death brings life. How does that work? Right? Maybe we need to deny ourselves today. If you haven't believed in Jesus, if you're not sure, right? Maybe we need to stop doing what is right in our own eyes and actually pick up our cross and die to ourselves and follow him. But for all of us who are baptized, who have been walking with Jesus, guess what? The response is the same exact thing. We need to die to ourselves and stop doing what is right in our own eyes and pick up our cross and follow Jesus, right? We have or we can be saved through Jesus. Jesus passed through the waters of chaos and destruction and death for your sake. 
So let's come find our rest today in Jesus at the table. Let's come find healing through the broken one today. Let's realize that Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath so that he could just extend to us a cup of salvation in his blood. It's a simple invitation today, but I hope that we hear it and that we actually do what James says, which is to be not just hearers of the word, but doers. Okay, so I'm gonna pray and Ben is gonna come up and lead us in communion. God, there's a lot going on in this story and in these three chapters. There's a lot that could be said and that was left unsaid. But what I pray that we would remember today is the simple message that you love us in Jesus Christ and you have given us a path to be saved from destruction, from our own sin. Help us today, Lord, to realize that we need you and to cling to you, not in fear of your judgment, but in a reverent and awesome love for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name, amen.